Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We cannot wait for our guests today. I will tell you they have, oh, this duo has come highly requested. Melissa, I know you can't wait. I'm about to rewrite a new forward for their book after this podcast because <laughs> I'm so excited to do this you've this got, summer. You've got plans for the summer. I have plans for the summer. I can't wait. So I know <laughs> you're excited specifically for our two sure. guests today. Yeah, so we have our good friend Natalie Wexler back, which is always exciting. But I know she third brought, time. I know third time. Yeah, but she brought along a partner this time. <laughs> <laughs> so Judith Hockman is here today, and I'm so excited because if you look back at all of our um, episodes, Lori, we really have not talked about writing enough. So I'm so excited to talk to them about the writing revolution um, and why it's just such such a powerful process for teaching writing and how it can be used by all teachers and all grade levels. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to dig into this conversation today. So welcome back, Natalie, and welcome, Judy. Thank you. Yeah, so if let's um, let's have our returning guest, Natalie, if you don't mind, share a little bit about yourself. Although I feel like you know everybody <laughs> knows who you are because you've been here so many times. Um, and then Judy, then we'll have have you share a bit about yourself. Is that good? Sure. Okay. Sure. So for for those who may not know, and I'm sure there are some, um, I am um, I'm, I'm a, I write about education. Um, I'm the author of a book called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, and the co-author with Judith Hockman of The Writing Revolution. Um, and I always get the subtitle wrong, but I'm not going to try to we do it. We have it. Okay, you have it. A Guide uh, to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades. That's it, right. Um, <laughs> and I um, have learned an enormous amount from Judy, and uh, it's really, it's her her method, and I just helped her write it. She's also, I will say, the person who turned me on to the problem I write about in the knowledge gap. So uh, the knowledge gap would not exist, I think, but for Judy. So that's a Judy, fun fact. Take it away. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Judy, I hope you're getting all the residuals then from the knowledge gap. Judy, I'm excited to learn more about you. Will you tell us a bit more? Well, first, let me tell you, there would be no writing revolution book if it weren't for Natalie. <laughs> really helped me focus and keep me on task. Um. I was a teacher for many years, taught mainly middle school and high school, but had a little bit of elementary thrown in there. And then I went over to the dark side administration, (laughs) became first the curriculum uh, director and then the head of an independent school for children with learning and language disabilities Mm -hmm. in New York. And it was there that um, I really fully understood how tight the links are between reading comprehension, critical thinking, and writing. And uh, and how I felt that these students who were of average to above intelligence, but certainly had issues that they were struggling with in school, needed to learn to write a different way. 
So over time, I developed this method at the school and we started to give workshops and courses in it because when they would return to the mainstream, people commented how well they were writing compared to students who were in general ed. So more and more teachers began to attend our courses and um, the word got out that perhaps this was a strategy that um, had not been used or recognized in many sites. After that, I became um, a superintendent of schools in a district that was um, for hard to place students. And we it was a great venue for me to keep testing and trying and evaluating what worked and helping kids express themselves through written language. Um, and after that, I decided to devote all my energy to uh, focusing on writing. And uh, so <clears throat> I met Natalie fortuitously waiting for an elevator <laughs> in the DOE. Really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> in, in I love it. That is so great. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, it, it changed my life. <laughs> um, they, they were asking, uh, they had come up, a couple of people from, Washington had come up to see the method in action in New York, had decided that this may be beneficial for D.C. And um, at that point, there was no organization. There was no name, the writing revolution, except for an article that came out in the Atlantic that was very favorable to this approach. And Natalie said, well, if we ever form an organization, she would consider being on the board to which I was overwhelmed very happy <laughs> and um so that's what happened we formed a not-for-profit also called the writing revolution because we're not too creative we would call <laughs> everything the writing revolution keep it simple right <laughs> and um the rest is kind of history you know the the book has by far exceeded our expectations. I think it sold over 150,000 copies on every continent except Antarctica. <laughs> and it's, um, and, and, you know, we're excited that the word is spreading about this because we really do. It's, it's a tremendous benefit to kids who are, and their teachers. Yeah. I would even say, and their parents too. Oh, okay. And I'll add in their parents. <laughs> As Lori goes to teach it all summer, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's, this is our summer. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I said to you all um, in our pre-call that, you know, I, I see all the time people asking on Facebook groups and things like that for recommendations for writing programs. Um, especially connected to the science of reading, um, which to me just means connected to something research-based. <laughs> um, but they always say the writing revolution. And I always think it's interesting because I'm like, well, it's not a program, <laughs> but I'm glad you all are recommending the writing revolution so much. That's a good thing. Um, but I, I wonder how you all would explain, you know, no, it's not a program, right? It's not a pick it up out of a box. It te tells you what to teach on day one, day two. That's not it. How well would how would you explain the writing revolution then, Natalie? Why don't you ex respond to that? Well, um, I mean, there's a good reason that it's not a program out of a box mm -hmm. because so the the two I would say that the two 
characteristics that distinguish the writing revolution from, from other approaches to writing instruction. And it's an approach. It's a method rather than a curriculum. Yeah. Are, first of all, that um, it, it begins at the sentence level, if that's what students need, so that they're not overwhelmed as inexperienced writers by writing independently at length. But secondly, it's designed to be adapted and grounded in whatever curriculum content you're already, you're teaching. That's assuming you are teaching a curriculum that has content, that is content rich, which is not always the case, especially at the elementary level, as you know. But, um, and so it it really, uh, you know, it requires a little bit of work in that it has to be adapted. It is not something that comes with its own set of topics and reading passages, et cetera. And, and there are reasons for that. And the other thing is that, um, you know, it's not that just when kids get to high school, they magically become better writers, right? So it is has to be adapted to the abilities and the needs of whatever particular students are in front of you. So that's another reason why it can't just be out of a box. And, oh, this is eighth grade, so this is what we're going to focus on. It, you may have some eighth graders who still need to learn how to construct a good sentence while others right. are ready to write five paragraph or multiple paragraph essays. So that's, you know, it's it's a little trickier than just a curriculum in a box, but those curricula in a box are not going to work as well. So there's a reason that that this requires a little, some extra steps. Well, curriculum in a box uh, is generally curricula in writing that's taught in isolation from the rest of what's being taught in school. And uh, and that's one of the reasons that it doesn't work effectively, because unless you help kids to write in the content in which they're learning and respect writing as a powerful learning tool, it's really not very effective. And uh, we find that, you know, what it does not transfer easily, what they learn from the box or in a separate room down the hall where writing is taught um, does not transfer to the writing assignments that they're going to get as they move along in school. Whereas if it's embedded in the subjects that they're learning, it's far more effective. And I don't think it's a very heavy lift for teachers who have used it for a while because it becomes so naturally part of their repertoire and they get the benefits of it pretty quickly because we start at the foundation with the sentences and they can see very quickly where this is heading. Would you agree? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I, and it is designed to be used not just in the ELA or English class, but across the curriculum. And there may be, I, you know, resistance from science teachers or math teachers who say, well, I, you know, I didn't sign up to be a writing teacher. But when they see that actually these activities, they don't interfere with the teaching of the content. They actually facilitate and improve the teaching of the content and deepen students' understanding and ability to retain information. It, you know, I think it becomes interwoven into their instruction and, uh, you know, they're, they're very pleased with the results, as Judy said. Yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, when I was reading through it again, um, <laughs> I, I noticed like, you can be you can do this with kids that aren't even actually writing yet, right? You can do some of this orally with the youngest students, um, just like at the sentence level, asking them to add on to their sentence or you know creating a full sentence out of a fragment. You know that can be 
Yeah, well, I'm, we're, I'm in the middle of, actually, I just finished watching the our K through two course, mm-hmm. of which 75% is oral. Yeah. So you're absolutely on target. Yeah. yeah. Like, make, like, and you can do the same kinds of things that you might do with an eighth grade student, but they do it, just do it at like a more sophisticated level because they might be making a bit longer of a sentence, right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's also, you know, by the same token, some people feel, well, sentence level work is inappropriate for high school because they should be doing, you know, right. a longer writing. But a sentence, as Judy says, the, the, the rigor of these activities varies with the content. So writing a sentence about, you know, the causes of the Civil War is going to be more cognitively challenging than writing a sentence about, you know, what happened in, I don't know, Brown Bear or Brown Bear, what did you see or something? (laughs) Um, So um, there's that. And there's also, you know, or doing things orally and collaboratively is also important at any grade level when you're introducing one of a new strategy, something that's unfamiliar. And it's also important to do that in content that's familiar because that, that opens up cognitive capacity for students to understand the strategy. You're you're lessening those other burdens on working memory. Um, They don't have to do it independently and they don't necessarily need to do, do it in writing. So it's not just K through two uh, where the oral aspects are important. And the other thing I would say is, I think there's some misconception among some people that method requires that kids could do sort of master all of the sentence level strategies before they can move on to uh, the other parts of the method, like outlining a paragraph. And that's not true. You know, kindergartners can outline a paragraph orally and collaboratively. Um, You don't have to wait. These things can proceed simultaneously. The thing that has to wait a bit is asking students to write independently at length. Um, mm-hmm. if, if, if they are not yet uh, able to construct good sentences, that's just going to be too overwhelming and they're probably not going to write anything particularly coherent. And they're also probably not going to have the cognitive capacity available to, to get the knowledge building benefits from writing. Yeah. And not very motivated to write when they're in that place. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. The, the writing revolution, the strategies in the writing revolution uh, are, are focused heavily on expository writing, writing that explains or informs. Mm-hmm. It's not about um, journal writing or poetry or what is commonly called creative writing. Not that we're against this, but first of all, we feel you write much better creatively if you know something about writing. And um, the second thing is that, as we said earlier, writing as a tool for building knowledge is so powerful that to neglect that, even in the earliest grades, is a big mistake, we feel. Well, we agree, Judy. That's why you're here. (laughs) for sure yeah um I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about the specific strategies the the process of teaching writing um I don't know who would like to go first on that one Judy why don't you go ahead well um yeah okay Uh, the, the famous one the one that everybody seems to know about is because button so a real crowd favorite it is it's so easy. You really, you took that and you made it so easy for us. But it, it's, but it's so powerful. So powerful. 
Well, you know, rather than say, um, why do we still remember Lincoln? Rather than ask an open question like that, if you ask, if you ask, if you ask students to repeat sentences like we remember Lincoln because we remember Lincoln, but we remember Lincoln. So you're asking kids to analyze the information on a far deeper level than they ordinarily would. By the same token, when you ask kids to explain or expand sentences using question words, who, what, when, where, why, and how, you're asking them to give more information to that invisible reader who they often forget about when they're writing. And these two, along with other strategies, um, help students in their revision. And revision isn't something that takes place either on the teacher feedback or how children actually revise their work um, very effectively most of the time. So we rely heavily on the sentence strategies to help kids revise. We also rely on the outlines to help them organize their thoughts, sequence their thoughts, place their important points in specific places. These are things that the outlines can help them do. So um, together, I think you're really benefiting teacher instruction, of which there is very little of in teacher training institutions regarding writing, and empowering students to express themselves far more effectively. I could go on about the strategies, but I think that you know, those are two examples. And we also rely pretty heavily on strategies that reflect written language. So a written language form might be Natalie Wexler, a gifted author, is being interviewed in a podcast today. That's not something that's an oral language expression. That really, that a positive, a gifted author is most often found in written language. Mm -hmm. So instantly you increase the sophistication of the writing quite a bit. Yeah, and I just would elaborate on, on with a point Judy was making about how these sentence level strategies then feed into writing at length when students are ready to do that. Um, so teachers might say, you know, oh, can you vary your sentence structure? But students may not know how to do that. If they've been taught to use something like what Judy was saying very flatteringly to me, that you know, <laughs> a gifted author, that's called an appositive. So that creates a kind of shorthand once students know what an appositive is and how to construct a sentence with one, instead of just saying vary your sentence structure and getting perhaps a blank look, right. a teacher could say, how about putting in, making this first sentence into an appositive, inserting an appositive into that sentence? And that, you know, in, in enriches the sentence, um, but also at the same time. So these sentence level strategies, and also there are things like transition words. How do you use uh, words like consequently or as a result? Or, and those are, again, things that kids are, phrase, words and phrases kids are unlikely to just pick up from conversation. They need to be explicitly taught. But even while they're they're working on these sentence level strategies so that they can then use them when they revise their drafts, those sentence level strategies themselves are building knowledge, almost all of them, right, uh, right. because even something as simple as because, but, and so, 
each of those conjunctions requires a student to retrieve a different kind of information from what they've got in long-term memory. Maybe they've slightly forgotten it, but they have to retrieve it. And then they put it in their own words. Both of those things are very powerful boosts to comprehension and retention of information. And that structure, even just because, but, and so, you know, put some guardrails on kids' attention so that they're not just like, well, so what is it about Lincoln that we remember? It's it's like, you know, well, what is the contrasting information about Lincoln that you, you know, so it's really very powerful. Now, I will say even something as simple as because, but, and so needs to be carefully constructed by the teacher so that it is getting at the information that we want students to focus on and retain and analyze. So there's that. <laughs> Can you share a little bit more about that, Natalie or Judy, like what that might look like, like if we're if the teacher is carefully focusing on that, because I think that's really important. And those are strategies that I know that I you know, see teachers using all the time. So I know they're using them because they're sharing them in all those cool Facebook groups that we're in and how much they love the writing revolution. So I'm seeing at like lots of examples of teachers using them. But how could teachers use them, like, I guess, even more effectively? So I think that a very important thing that we stress is the anticipated response that when you develop an activity for a student as all teachers do in all subjects for all kinds of reasons it's important to anticipate what kind of response you're going to get from the child for example there are times when you're constructing what we call a stem the beginning of a sentence um with because, but, and so, or say is subordinating conjunction. They've got to finish that out because sometimes they might assume, and I know this has happened to me on many occasions, that the response may be obvious and it's not. There are times that because and so can play and end up with the same answer. So, you know, these things have to be tried. And even if the teacher does that in her own mind, very important. And I just want to add that we're throwing around um, words like transitions and positives and so forth. We don't teach, uh, we, we don't think teaching grammar in isolation is very beneficial. Uh, I know that Natalie used to love diagramming sentences <laughs> When I was a kid. <laughs> Me too, Natalie. I have good memories of yeah. doing that, but I think it could be really scarring for other people. <laughs> and, well, I would venture to say that it played no role whatsoever in Natalie being the writer. She is her glory. <laughs> no, you know what I liked about it, Judy? I'll be honest. You have to use different color chalk at the chalkboard. And I remember being like, I love the purple chalk because I love the way it, it <laughs> slid across the chalkboard I and you diagrammed that. the sentences. And that's what I remember about it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, well, you know, teaching grammar in isolation probably doesn't benefit composing much. And in fact, there are some studies that indicate that it might have some negative effect. But if you go into a third or fourth grade writing revolution classroom, Kids know what positives are, subordinating conjunctions are, because they're using these terms in the service of what they're composing and writing. They have very real meaning for them. So um, that 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 has a benefit. And um, 
Yeah, I was going to say this, Judy, because I, I did my student teaching in a seventh grade classroom and I taught a writing class, which was separate from their English class, which looking back, I'm like, why did we do this? <laughs> but I, you know, I was just doing what I was told because I was a student teacher <laughs> and we had different units on. I had, we had a preposition unit, we had a conjunction unit and it was, you know, they identified the prepositions, they identified the conjunctions, and then they moved on to the next unit. <laughs> and, you know, I'm thinking back to that now and the difference here, which like you, you just said it, right? It's so much more meaningful. They're using it. They're using it to make their, their writing better. They're seeing why we use prepositions, why we use conjunctions, not just, I, well, this is the unit for this <laughs> this month. So I want to get an A on the test and we can keep moving. Um, but they're really seeing the the power in those types of words. So then it sticks with them. And even if they might forget what they're called at first, that's okay if they know how to use them. Well, it also makes the te- teacher feedback better because if you say to which, you know, make your topic sentence better, as opposed to why not add it a positive in your topic right. sentence, you know, there's a world of difference there in the kind of feedback that you're giving the child. And um, I think that's important. I keep saying child, whereas most of the kids I taught were teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering, I don't know if we want to go here yet, but I really want to make sure we hit it. So I'm going to go there and then we can come back if we need to. But um, one of the things I really, really love about the writing revolution and thinking about um, Scarborough's reading rope is I always think of the language comprehension side and there's the one part of that rope that's called syntax, right? It's like, how do you help students break down longer sentences, complicated sentences? And I always come back to when I think of teaching them writing so explicitly like this and teaching them how to create their own longer sentences and more complex sentences, like that has to help the reading part of it, right? (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I I think, well, one, so written language, as I think we've said is, or alluded to, is almost always more complex than spoken language, different Mm -hmm. vocabulary and, and this more complex syntax with, you know, some lots of different clauses and phrases and subordinating conjunctions and things like that. And if kids are going to be able to read and understand complex text independently, they have to become familiar with that different kind of language. And as Judy has said, it's almost like a second language. Um, And one way to do that is through reading aloud complex text to kids so that they can hear it. And that helps. But even more powerful is teaching them how to use those words and that kind of syntax themselves, how to construct sentences that are complex. Once you know how to do that, you're in a much better position to understand that kind of syntax when you encounter it in your reading. And we've definitely, you know, certainly anecdotally seen that, heard that from from teachers and students. Makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I remember, you know, the light bulb that, bulb that went off for me some time ago when I read, I believe it was Cheryl Scott's work saying that when you teach kids to write complex sentences, they're far better able to comprehend them when they encounter them in text. And that made so much sense to me. And we've, we certainly tried it and saw it. And having them use, you know, subordinating conjunctions and constructing independent clauses on their own bore that out in every classroom that I've been in. 
And one one other thing I would mention uh, is, uh, and Judy can probably elaborate more on this, it also carries over into students' oral language, their, the way they speak in, in, in class and outside of class probably as well. But, you know, there's a, it's sort of a two-way street. I think talking about a topic, brainstorming before you start writing is help, very helpful. Uh, but then once you've written about it, once you've learned to use this kind of more complex syntax, that can carry over into your speech. Yeah, I love this idea of like reciprocity. That's, it's so important. And thank you for naming that. One of the things that you just mentioned, Natalie, made me think about like the topics that students are writing about. And, you know, I know that we've talked a bit today about background knowledge and the importance of students having knowledge on what they're writing. But in our pre-call, I think Natalie, you had mentioned this and I wrote it down and I just wanted to bring it up as like a real clear, concrete example that writing skills are not necessarily transferable. So learning how to write an argument of an essay about chocolate milk in the cafeteria doesn't necessarily transfer to like a collegiate style essay about a specific topic-based argument. So is there any way that you might be able to elaborate on that? Because I know there are a lot of people listening who are in that scenario where their current you know, curricula have kids writing about Um, chocolate milk or something of the sort, and they might not be getting the results that they want to get from their kids or from their students, even though they might be trying to use some of these practices. So would you be able to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think what we're up against is, um, you know, you, it's, it's hard to read about a topic you know nothing about, but it is really impossible to write about a topic you know nothing about. And so One way around that has been, given the lack of content in the elementary curriculum, has been to, this is sort of the writer's workshop approach, have kids write about their personal experience and their personal opinions that they know about those. So that solves that problem. But that wastes a golden opportunity to get to to use writing as a tool to build and deepen kids knowledge about what they're supposed to be learning. Then I think, you know, with the advent of the common core writing standards and a greater emphasis on expository and persuasive or argumentative writing, even in the, at the elementary levels, you started seeing these curricula that were like, okay, we're going to teach kids how to do persuasive writing by having them write an opinion piece about whether we should have chocolate milk in the cafeteria or, or whatever. And then they'll be able, it's, it's a parallel to these, the, the idea of reading comprehension skills. If you, we'll teach them how to find the main idea and then they'll be able to find the main idea of anything. And it doesn't really matter how what context they've learned how to find the main idea in. Mm-hmm. Context matters for both reading comprehension and writing. And it is in some ways easier to certainly to write about personal experience to, or personal opinion, uh, but it doesn't mean you're going to be able to then write an argumentative essay about you know the causes of the Civil War. And with these separate topics like chocolate milk. I mean, there are others as well. How should I should you have uh, what <laughs> school, uniforms. Allowance, school uniforms? Yes, there, <laughs> there's, there's several of them out there. Um, you know, that may or may not draw on a, a separate body of knowledge. It also won't transfer. But sometimes what you see is, okay, here are three paragraphs about, you know, insects. Now you write an opinion essay about your favorite insect. And it can be very hard for kids to do that if they've all, all they know about insects is those those three paragraphs. Um, so you 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 do need um, first of all some knowledge to begin writing. You need some something more than three paragraphs. 
And I think that then what happens, though, is in the process of writing, you may realize you need more information. You may realize that you did not understand what you thought you understood. And, and you also make new connections. You build you, yeah. your analy- You're forced to analyze things and make connections between bits of information and deepen the knowledge of whatever it is you're writing about. So you both have to start with some fairly rich knowledge. But then in the process of writing, it becomes richer and deeper. And why would we waste that on chocolate milk in the cafeteria? I mean, <laughs> if, if you decide as part of your core curriculum that you want kids to study the issue of chocolate milk in the cafeteria, then maybe it does make sense to have them write about it. I mean, if, if that, that's what you want. But I think it shouldn't be, we should not put the cart before the horse by saying, well, what topic could we choose to help kids learn to write a persuasive essay we should be looking at the topics that are in the curriculum because we've decided those are the important topics we want kids to learn about. And then thinking, well, which of these topics might lend itself to a persuasive kind of writing? Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I would imagine as a teacher too, I would, you know, you get so much more information, right? Rather than I'm looking at this piece of writing just to look to see if they can do the pieces of writing that I want them to do. You know, now you can look at it to see, okay, you know, how, where are they with the writing, but then also where are they with the content? Like I can see whether they have misconceptions about the content that I taught and like yeah. you, it's a two for one. <laughs> and and that's another good use of sentence level activities. It's a great comprehension check if they're well-constructed and it reaches every student in the class, not just, you know, the ones you call on or the ones who raise their hand or ones who choose to participate in discussion. Right. Yeah. Judy, do you want to add anything to that? No, my my brain was going very fast <laughs> as Natalie was speaking because you know I obviously I agree with every word and and in the back of my mind I was thinking of how important those outlines are and uh, in terms of organizing before you write and we we came up with ways of starting to write little opinion essays even at the sentence level with. Zoos are very popular, but that's the beginning of contrasting and arguing in favor of one thing over another. And we take it step by step. I think uh, one of the reasons for the popularity of the writing revolution is that we don't take very much for granted. We're pretty granular in our approach right up through writing argument because we're not assuming that students know what we know, they probably don't know. And teachers, unfortunately, try so hard and work so hard to get, um, well, to meet the standards of a particular state or district, but they're really not shown how in their teacher training institutions for the most part. Writing is so complex. It's the hardest skill to teach. It's the hardest skill to learn. But when you embed it in what they are learning and what they are learning is challenging, is part of the program that we hope would be in play. Um, you, you really it, it's very important and we would love to see that emphasized. Yeah, it reminds me of here in Baltimore, before we adopted a curriculum, we um, we we made our own curriculum <laughs> and I, I think we did a pretty decent job of having 
pretty good writing tasks. They probably could have used improvement, but you know, they were, they were pretty good and they were, they were embedded with the content that they were using. But what we didn't do was what you just said, Judy, which was, we, we just assigned the tasks, you know, <laughs> and we just said, good luck. <laughs> not, not really, but you know, that's, that's what we gave the teachers was just here, here, you know, here's some, here's the reading, here's the task. Right. I think we were all very no. good at designing things, but not teaching yeah. kids how to get there. And yeah. one of the things that I should add is that the outlines that we promote are linear. They're very simple, linear outlines. Kids don't need a pre-printed template for them, right. although we will supply them, you know, but it, they're, they're simple and they can really cut across so many of the errors that you commonly see in longer pieces of writing when they're taught and used effectively, which is not that hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, there, there are bubble maps and things like that are really popular. And, <laughs> but and it, I write all the time and I need often to write a at least a quick linear outline before I write even, you know, a thousand words post because even though I'm a very experienced writer, it's still hard for me to keep track of things like, what was I going to say next? Or did I already <laughs> say that? You know, and, and just imagine if you're still learning the mechanics of writing, how difficult it is to keep all those things in your head, in your working memory. Uh, and so what you can do with a linear outline is you offload some of that cognitive load onto a piece of paper or a screen or whatever it is. Uh, and then you don't have to, you have more capacity to think about how you want to say something and, you know, to, to craft your words because you're not thinking, wait a minute, what was I going to say here? <laughs> you know? Natalie's posts have contained extremely useful information about working memory, cognitive load. And the method that's used in the writing revolution has taken that information, took that information decades ago very seriously in building the strategies for this method because um, we were careful not to overload the kid with too much as they're learning this difficult skill together with what they're learning in content. And I think that we've done that fairly successfully according to what we've seen and according to the studies that we've done and are doing. Exciting. I wanted to ask, you guys just talked about the planning as being really important. And the other part of the process, the writing process that you all call out is the revising yeah. as, as the, I guess, other really important part. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why that's such an important part of the process? Natalie? You, <laughs> well, I think that's where, so, so you've got your outline. Let's say you have a nice, clear, linear outline. You've got your thoughts organized. And then it's a fairly uh, mechanical exercise to just translate that into a draft. But at that point, the draft may be pretty wooden, right? It may not flow. It doesn't, the sentence structure may be, you know, just very simple, repetitive. There may not be words that connect the thoughts or signal a change of direction. All That's where revision comes in. And that's where those sentence level skills, those strategies that you've learned, hopefully, about how to there your sentence structure, connect your thoughts. That's where you make the writing flow. Now, eventually, like if, 
you know, if you have written for many years, you may not have those two stages, the draft, and then it's it's going to become more sort of recursive and mixed up. But when you're still learning this stuff, it's very helpful to, okay, now I have this draft. How do I how do I make it sing? How do I make it something people might want to actually read? And that's where revision comes in. Um, and then, and Judy, one of the things that she taught me was the distinction between revising and editing, uh, which I think a lot of people may not understand, or, or they might use those terms interchangeably, but um, the editing is more of the mechanical stuff, the punctuation and things like, I mean, not in the world of journalism, <laughs> but in the world of the classroom, um, it, it's revising is where you're, you're, you're really uh, playing with the ideas a bit, but, but making them flow. Um, and you probably want to do that before you bother with the editing. <laughs> And, and and when you're doing the revising, we, we give the kids a very simple paragraph with no spelling or any grammatical errors. Everything is capitalized that it should be. And so we take the editing piece off the table. Yeah, because that's where they always want to go first. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, because that's where we all want to go first. Because it's easier. <laughs> that's the most comfortable. But when you lead the kids along step by step and say, start your topic sentence with a subordinating conjunction, use a transition to begin your third sentence, you know, end your uh paragraph with a command and this is a very simple uh, you know try not to use good in every sentence or fun in every sentence whatever they can spell and love to use (laughs) it's a wonderful opportunity for them to see how these first is a wonderful opportunity to give the teachers a way to provide feedback that's much more meaningful and for the students to see that it doesn't take a whole lot to make their writing look a lot better than it did. And so, as Natalie said, we rely a lot on the sentence activities for, you know, beginning to teach revising. And later we rely a lot on the organization of the outline to improve what we're doing substantively. So the two work together um, quite closely. I love that. I love that it, you know, you guys, you build up from sentence level up, but then also, you know, this can build every, every year in school and get, you know, more and more rich as they, the content becomes more complex and they can write more complex sentences. It can just keep building on, on, on itself throughout their whole time in school. Yes. Ideally they start this at the, in the elementary grades, but I will say that it is one of the few things that can work at the high school level to, uh, you know, turn things around. And there aren't there aren't many things that work at that point. If you've if you've got kids who, through no fault of their own, have a lot of gaps in their knowledge of the world, um, the kind of knowledge that's assumed in their textbooks. But um, I mean, that's what this Atlantic article back in 2012 was about. Was a high school on Staten Island that had was so low performing it was in danger of being closed. And really turned itself around largely by adopting a method that was then called the Hockman method, um, because it (laughs) didn't didn't have the writing revolution name yet, but essentially the same method. Yeah, I totally have that pulled up and we'll link it in our uh, in our notes here. I was like, oh, 2012. It's been a decade of the writing revolution without 
formally titling event, right? <laughs> it's, it is amazing. And that is how I w- came across Judy Hockman was I read that article in the writing revolution at the time. I, I mean, I, I was just a neophyte, just a baby in the woods um, within the education world. And I had decided I wanted to know, like, what's the problem with high school? And I volunteered to tutor some students in writing at a high poverty high school. And I discovered two things. One is they weren't learning how to write. Nobody was even asking them to do any writing assignments. Um, And when I gave them things to read so that they could write about them, I realized that they didn't understand the things I was giving them to read even though I thought they were fairly straightforward because there were so many gaps in their vocabulary, their knowledge of the world. So when I read this article in The Atlantic, I thought, oh my God, this is what the kids I'm working with need because it both teaches them how to write and it builds their knowledge of the, at the same time. Wouldn't it be great if someday this method could come to DC public schools? But of course that will never happen. This, this is, you know, some high school on Staten Island. And then, <laughs> and then I, I happened to be at a meeting that the DC public schools was having about different literacy initiatives they were going to try maybe. And somebody said, we read this article in the Atlantic about this method of writing instruction. And we, you know, we really like to bring that here. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. So I said, excuse me, is there anything I could do to help with that? You know? <laughs> and, um, and that's how I met Judy. And in fact, the DC public schools did bring, I mean, they were the first district to say, Hey, we want to try this. So um, yeah. I love, I love all the like serendipity of, of how you two met and how yeah. this came together. It's really cool. Yeah, it could easily not have happened. That's right. That's right. Very much serendipity. <laughs> well, before we all ask, we ask you some closing questions. Is there anything else about the writing revolution that you want to make sure our listeners hear that we haven't already mentioned? We give courses and workshops and not just in the writing revolution itself, but how to implement it in a whole school. Um, We give courses in leadership and so forth. And um, of course, the book has a free resource link to it that people can pull down activities, templates for the outlines and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the the book, which is, you know, the the success of the book has exceeded our wildest expectations. (laughs) Pretty much so. And um, I I think for for some teachers, the book, you know, that's all they need to really run with it. I think for for many teachers, this is so different that it may uh, be really helpful to, to take the, one of the courses that they're now online, so you can be anywhere in Australia. Lots of people are taking these courses, <laughs> and um, and they do now have some. There's there's sort of a general introduction, but there's also one, as Judy mentioned, for kindergarten to second grade teachers. There's one specifically focused on STEM. Um, so you know, I would encourage people to to take a look at those if they're interested in really trying to implement the method in their classroom. And of course, it helps to do it if possible, not just as an individual teacher, but school-wide, if, if possible, <laughs> district-wide, if possible. So, <laughs> And I can vouch for those courses. I actually took one and it, it is really helpful to, I, I wasn't in the classroom at the time, but it was still helpful for me to practice, you know, taking what's in the book and then making it for like, what, what would I do in my classroom? You know, what, what, what would these sentence stems look like, <laughs> you know, and really thinking through them. So, because it does, it does take some work to think through what, what would make a good, a good one, right? Like, you know, you can, you can throw anything up there, but to make it really good and make it like powerful for the students and really get what you want from them. It, it does take a little, 
a little bit of thought. And so it was really helpful to get, you know, I, I got feedback from people about, <laughs> about what I wrote. And so that was, it was good. I can just say they're, they're good courses. That's inspiring, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I can say, even after having, you know, worked with, written the book with Judy, I was working with um, a, a, an adult who um, was from Latin America and she wanted to improve her English writing skills. And I thought, oh, I'll just give her some of the activities from the writing revolution. And it was really more difficult than I had anticipated <laughs> to come up with, you know, what we, we need something embedded in some kind of content. And then what do right. I want to how to construct an activity from this content? So it, it can be a little tricky, but once you get the hang of it, you know, then it, I think it becomes second nature. Yeah, for sure. As you were all talking, I was thinking about Judy's advice earlier. I think it was Judy that anticipated response. Yes. <laughs> Right. Make sure you're anticipating the response that you want or that you're so that you're getting them as you're in the process of developing, you're thinking about the end goal in mind. So I love that. All right. Right. All right, Melissa, are we ready to bring it home? I think so. Yes. Um, so we, we usually end with our five questions, but I think we're going to combine a few of them today so that because there's two of you <laughs> so we'll combine our, our questions um so we'll start with the first question to both of you of what do you love to read watch or listen to oh wow uh <laughs> there are so many possible answers to that um but i'll just i'll just talk about what i'm reading right now i um I am reading The House of Mirth by Edith Wharton, which I think I may have read before, but I'm going to Lenox, Massachusetts this summer. And I know there's a house there that she lived in. And I thought, well, I want to visit the house. So therefore I should read something by her. And I must say it, I mean, I love to read contemporary stuff too. And I read a lot of nonfiction, but it's wonderful to just plunge into this world of the late 19th century, early 20th century um, and, and just lose myself in it. So that's so cool. Yeah, I I join that. Edith Wharton is a is definitely a favorite of mine. Lately, I've been learning to love William Maxwell all over again. I think his writing is absolutely terrific and uh, a joy to read, and something that I wish I wrote like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, this next one is going to ask us to dig into our memory banks, so. Uh, Natalie, I'm wondering if this could be a memory since you were not a, t- a formal teacher, but um, if it could be any kind of memory in, when you've been in a classroom. So we could phrase it like that. But what is a memory that you love as a teacher or as a student? Oh, wow. Judy, you want to go first? <laughs> well, certainly as a teacher, uh, there have been countless memories uh, that both embarrassed me, which my <laughs> God, you didn't ask me about. <laughs> but also, it, it, there is nothing more rewarding than seeing a youngster uh, become empowered by um, speaking more effectively, or writing more expressively and coherently. And I say that on a personal level because I know at first hand, what it's like to struggle with language disabilities. And so this was particularly moving to me. And I still remember my fourth grade teacher, Miss Rossi, because she was pretty. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, well, I, I mean, I had some wonderful teachers, but I think that the memory that springs to my mind is I, I have taught highly motivated adults, which I know is not the same thing as teaching K through 12. But I've taught writing and I also have taught English as a second language to immigrants as a volunteer. And both of them were very rewarding, but especially teaching English to these immigrants who were so grateful and eager to learn. And it was really important to them. And you did feel like you were changing their lives and um, and they had such aspirations. And I remember saying to them once that uh, all four of my grandparents were immigrants and they came to this country not knowing English. And they wanted the same things as my students. Uh, they wanted their kids, they, they wanted to own a home. They wanted their kids to go to college and become professionals. And and I said to them, and they got all of those things, you know, and it was very uh, moving, very emotional. You did change their lives. <laughs> and some of them. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And our last question is, why do you do what you love for education or for literacy? Well, I'll, I'll, I mean, I feel like I stumbled upon uh, this, these massive <laughs> problems with our education system. And um, I, I couldn't believe that they weren't being talked about. And I just felt like somebody had to do something to get them into the public conversation, both in terms of how we approach reading comprehension and how we approach writing and really how divorced our, you know, ed schools and and education system is from what scientists have learned about how learning actually works. And so I have been, I guess, on a mission (laughs) since for the past 10 years or so, since I stumbled upon these issues. And um, it's really changed my life and been, aside from raising my kids, I guess, the most <laughs> gratifying thing I've ever done. So, you know, that's what keeps me going. I don't think there's ever been a time um, in my adult life and where I've, I've been, I've taken more seriously the need to help our younger people uh, think more analytically read more critically and express themselves more effectively than right now. Because uh, unfortunately, we don't teach a whole lot about civics and geography and the things that I grew up learning that much. And I think that um, if we can help through writing and through a knowledge-based curriculum, how to help children do it, Um, It would be tremendously important and something that I'm passionate about at this point, much more so than I was when I was younger. Thank you so much. We're so grateful. We, I feel like this is just such an honor to talk with both of you. And we're grateful that you gave us your time and Natalie, that you continue to give us your time. And I, you know what, I, it's a little chilly here today, but I, I didn't put on my wild about Wexler tank top where I, if it was warmer, I would have shown up wearing it for you. I think I would have found it disconcerting to be, watching, to be looking at it the whole time. So, but I really do appreciate your enthusiasm and I feel just as enthusiastic about you guys. And if you want me to come back for a fourth time, I will 
jump at the chance. <laughs> Perfect. We will come up with a good we'll reason. To it. <laughs> I certainly understand now why Natalie is such a great fan of the two of you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Oh, and you all let you. us know what we can do for you. So let us know how we can help you moving forward because we love to elevate your voices and we're so excited for this podcast to Eric's. It's, we get so many requests about the writing revolution. Absolutely. That's great, That's great to hear. Thank you guys. Thank, Thank you. you so much for having us. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. We release a new podcast episode every Friday and share more resources in a newsletter on Tuesday. Sign up for our newsletter at literacypodcast.com. Each week, you'll receive important information, resources, and connected content. We're excited to create a space for community discussion about our podcast. We want to connect with our listeners and support you in answering your questions. But we also realize there are a lot of other educators out there who have great advice and experience too. Let's keep learning together in our Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If the content in this episode helped you, share with a fellow educator and teacher friend. Our Literacy Lover community welcomes educators at every stage of their learning journey. We're so glad you're here to learn with us. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast in this episode are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees.